Today is the final sermon in our series, Is God Still Speaking? The scripture that we read this morning describes the scene in the Bible where God seems to speak the least at the cross where Jesus died. It seems kind of like an odd text to read on this Sunday before Thanksgiving, and yet it might point to the very thing that we are the most deeply grateful for. And it also seems a bit unusual to think about the death of Jesus while we are gearing up to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And yet, today's text might remind us why we celebrate that birth in the first place. Each of the four gospel writers tell the story of the day of crucifixion a little bit differently. And Luke introduces a theme that the other gospel writers omit. It's a theme that Luke has focused on throughout the Gospel of Luke, the theme of forgiveness. And so on the cross, Luke has Jesus pray to God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A few weeks ago, my friends and I were chatting about what each of us had planned for Thanksgiving over the holidays. And one of my friends said, well, this year, everyone is coming. And I mean everyone, the whole family. It's going to be the first time in years. You see, her family had been quite close. They got together for every holiday, even some birthdays. But after dad died, things got messy. Tension erupted amongst my friend and her siblings over the settlement of mom and dad's modest estate. One brother felt bruised and wronged, and he quit coming to everything. And with all the harsh words that had been spoken, the family broke up into little subgroups. The pain lingered for several years, but this year, she, she said, everyone is coming. She said it with such enthusiasm and also with a little bit of trepidation in her voice. Fred Rogers of PBS television fame once said that forgiveness is a strange thing because it can sometimes be easier to forgive our enemies than our friends, and it can be hardest of all to forgive the people that we love. In today's scripture about the day of crucifixion, it is Jesus who brings up this topic of forgiveness. While his body was experiencing horrendous pain, he uttered from the cross a prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. In a way, in this scene, Jesus appears powerless and mute, while other voices in this scene are shouting loudly as they deride and mock him. There is placed above Jesus a sign that says, King of the Jews, but it's actually a joke because they don't see Jesus as the king of anything. These various voices in the text swirl around him, hurling insults. It seems like every single group, every single person has turned against him. Take the religious leaders, for example. They are heckling him and torturing him and shouting, If you are God's chosen ones, then save yourself. And the government officials are laughing at him and scoffing and saying, If you're the king, then save yourself. And even one of those who is being crucified alongside him begs Jesus, saying, If you're the Savior, then save us and save yourself. And yet Jesus initially appears powerless and mute. One scholar puts it this way, 
the people have held an election and Jesus lost. None of the people here in this scene who are hurling the insults believe that they themselves are wrong. They think Jesus is wrong. They cannot look into his weak and tortured face and see the face of God. And we get it. Weakness is not attractive. Jesus prays for them to be forgiven, and they have no clue that they need forgiveness. Last summer, I read a novel called The Alice Network. It's a fictional account, but it's based on a true story of a group of brave women during World War I who served as spies on behalf of the Allied forces. One of the spies is named Eve. And Eve works undercover as a waitress at a French restaurant, smuggling secrets that she gleans from the military officers who dine at the restaurant. And near the end of the war, her identity is discovered, and she is drugged and tortured and told that she must give up the names of her fellow female spies. And for decades after the war, Eve suffers with horrendous guilt because she believes that during that time that she had been drugged and that she cannot recall, that it was her mouth that betrayed her comrades. Some of those female spies were then arrested and some died. And Eve is heralded as a war hero. She is given medals and she is revered by others who were in the war. But she cannot receive their praise. She cannot accept it. She cannot move on with her life. She rarely leaves her home. She has plenty of money, and she is highly respected. She has many talents and gifts, but she whiles away her time every evening with a bottle of bourbon to anesthetize herself from the pain. Eve blames herself. She cannot forgive herself. But some friends come along decades later and do research into the war. And they come and tell her that they have found irrefutable evidence that Eve did not give up the names of those other spies, that the secret was told by someone else. And finally, Eve is relieved of that guilt. Now she is a senior citizen, and she has a brand new outlook on life. She begins to travel. She begins to enjoy her friends. For so many years, she did not want to come to grips with her own brokenness and her own vulnerability. She is like so many of us who keep hidden parts of ourselves that we hope and pray no one will ever find out about. For our society rewards strength and valor and so we don't want anybody to know certain things about our past, like that time when our marriage was on the rocks because one of us had an affair, or that time when our son got a DUI. We do so much to keep secrets from one another, even from those who are the very closest to us. We do not reveal how we handled that unwanted pregnancy or the name of that person we dated who ended up in serious trouble. We might be known here at church as the most kind and generous and gregarious person, but we might not want anyone to know our reputation at the office 
as the rigid and difficult supervisor. None of us is perfect, but we can at least pretend. I love the story that Desmond Tutu tells about a light bulb. He says that there was a light bulb that shone brightly and proudly, and this light bulb would strut about arrogantly, quite unmindful of where its light came from. It began thinking that its brightness was due to its own merit and its own skill. But one day, the light bulb was taken out of the socket and placed on a tabletop. And try as hard as it could, the light bulb could bring forth no light and no brilliance. It had never known that its light came from the power station and that it needed to be connected by those little hidden and unseen wires. We, too, need each other in order to be brilliant. But too often we strut about thinking that we can go through our lives all alone, when in reality we are all fragile and vulnerable and in need of the power that comes from being connected to that larger source of life that we connect to through places like church and community and family and friends. All of us are vulnerable, but who among us wants to admit it? Deep down, though, we hunger to be reconnected. I love Ernest Hemingway's short story called The Capital of the World. Hemingway begins the short story like this. He says that Madrid is full of boys named Paco, which is the diminutive name of the name Francisco. And there is this Madrid joke about the father who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal columns of the newspaper. The ad read, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And on Tuesday, a police force had to be called out to disperse the 800 young men who answered that advertisement. The story reminds us that all of us, well, many of us, maybe all of us, also hunger to be reconnected to God, to each other, and even to ourselves. Nowen, Henry Nowen, was one of the great spiritual masters of the 20th century, and he once said that one of the greatest challenges of the spiritual life is to receive God's forgiveness. He said there is something in us humans that keeps us clinging to our sins and prevents us from letting God erase our past and offer us a completely new beginning. Back in May, when we visited the site of the crucifixion in Israel, scholar David May, who traveled with us, pointed out to us that when you look at a piece of religious art where Jesus is on the cross with the two criminals on either side of him, that you often have to turn your head and gaze upward in the painting to look at those crosses up high on a hill. But in reality, the crosses in the time of Jesus were placed right there along the side of the road at eye level so that everyone coming down the road would be able to look directly into the eyes of the humiliated one on the cross. And so everyone passing by saw the vulnerability 
and the pain and the weakness of Jesus. And Jesus was able to look into their eyes and to say in the midst of that horrific pain, God still wants a relationship with you and with all of humanity. Only one person in Luke's telling of this story receives the extravagant forgiveness of God. This one criminal appears to be the only one who hears God speak on that day. Two men were crucified alongside Jesus, one on his left and one on his right, and one says to the other, you and I, we are getting exactly what we deserve, but this Jesus, he has done nothing wrong. And then that one turns and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Only this broken, wounded, hurting, vulnerable man sees that a vulnerable Jesus is the true king of the universe. Lily and Charles are two of the main characters in a new novel called Dearly Beloved. Charles is the Presbyterian minister in New York City at a big congregation in the early 1960s. Lily, his wife, is an early feminist professor who cannot for the life of her figure out how any sane person could believe in God. They are an interesting couple. She wants nothing to do with her husband's church, and she spends all of her free time alone in their home preparing lectures for her university classroom. Lily's parents had raised her in the church as a Christian, but when her parents died a tragic death when she was a teenage girl, she turned away from her faith never to return. And then in the novel, Lily gives birth to twin boys, and one of the twins is diagnosed with severe autism long before the physicians or the educators had much insight into how to help such children learn and thrive. Lily and Charles are both devastated, but they respond differently. Lily throws every ounce of her being into helping her special needs child grow and thrive and learn. Meanwhile, Charles, her husband, the pastor, grows deeply depressed and loses his own faith. Lily realizes one day while she is working with one of the caregivers for her son that she was wrong. She says, I thought at the root of it that all things were unconnected, but I suppose that I'm going to have to admit that being connected is better than being alone. And then she goes and she seeks out her husband and she says to him, Charles, every time you look at your son, you feel the loss of God, and he begins to weep. You see, this atheist wife is giving God back to her husband, and the two of them join hands in prayer, and they pray, Lord, help us, make us compassionate, even when we turn away. Jesus turns to all who find themselves vulnerable and says, today you 
will be with me in paradise. <laughs>